let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another uh, evening, another weeknight, reflecting into the beauty of our faith, our Christian and Catholic faith. Uh, it is Thursday night, so we have the opportunity to return to this uh, great topic of apologetics and um, typically, I've, I've had Rob Sheridan join me, but we were unable to connect this week. So uh, this week and next week was going to kind of be a two-parter anyways, uh, where, we, where we are going to look at the four marks of the church. And so if you do have any uh, questions, uh, thoughts, observations, comments, don't hesitate to shoot me an email at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org and uh, connect with me there. Um, so, without Rob tonight, I'm, yes, flying solo, um, but we will continue to work through this work of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hahn's Reasons to Believe, as we go through the four marks of the Church, and we're certainly not going to get through all four uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic marks of the Church, but I thought we could get going and certainly spend the time we need to with the first one, which is certainly so foundational um, that mark of, uh, of unity. Before we get into the, the marks themselves, it would be important to note that we are in this chapter that's focusing on, you know, the biblical reasons, the biblical foundation uh, of, of the Catholic Church. And certainly this opens us up to sacred tradition. As we talked about last week, you know, we, we read in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he's encouraging his brothers to stay steadfast to the oral traditions which we've handed on to you. That really is the definition of sacred tradition. Ultimately, we spend some time talking about how the liturgy um, is the privileged locus or the privileged center of this tradition, because we are mindful that when we talk about tradition and sacred tradition, it's this conversation with the past, and uh, how can we as Catholics do better than, than the Mass, you know, where we, we are constantly conversing with the past, where the past is made pre- present in those words, do this in remembrance of me, in those words of the institution of the Eucharist. Um, again, and this is what we talked about last week. So with that, we move into these four marks. Now, how can we recognize the true Church of Jesus Christ? It was in the fourth century that the fathers of the church looked at the biblical testimony and discerned four strong characteristics of the church. And those characteristics are the marks I just spoke of. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So what can we say to this idea of the church being one, that the church is one? Well, again, let's just go to Scripture. You know, St. Paul emphasizes that just as there is one Lord and one God, so there is one faith, one baptism, this principle of unity. So what is the source of this? Well, of course, the Trinity, right? The Trinity. What is the Trinity? 
in its simplest terms, you have the Father loving the Son, and in return, the Son loving the Father, and in this eternal, perfect exchange of love, we have this Holy Spirit. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father and the Son. And what's more is the nature of love. G.K. Chesterton once said that the nature of love is to be bound. So the nature of love itself is intrinsic to unity, to becoming one, right? This is how the church reflects the life of the Trinity in so many dimensions. So the church, she is one in faith and baptism, and the source of this is the Trinity, especially as we talk about uh, the love shared between the Father and the Son. Of course, what's so beautiful about this is this is the gift that we receive at Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we might be better uh, stewards of our faith and we might love more. So the church is one. You know, repeatedly, Paul describes the church as one body, identified with the integrity and uniqueness of our Lord's own body. Um, I mean, this is everywhere in Paul. If you were to go to Romans 12, we read in Romans 12, verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Paul goes on to say, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. He who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal. He who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, essentially, while all believers are one in Christ, they are individual members with differing gifts and tasks for the good of the whole body. Okay, if you were to go uh, into what that word gift means there from verse 6, it's interesting. Um, the Greek word is charismata. It's related to the word grace, charis. The short list of gifts that he gives here in these sets of verses kind of draw um, out the importance of working together as one body in Christ. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians 12, it's 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 to 26. And there, what Paul is highlighting is that everyone serves a vital and indispensable function in the body of Christ. And as the constituent parts of a body perform different functions and yet work together, what Paul wants us to see is that every member of the body of Christ is assigned an important task for the good of the whole. And certainly, what's important for us to see is that, that in its uniqueness, in its diversity, it doesn't break down the unity, but it only enriches the unity. The, the diversity of these gifts are necessary. They not only advance uh, the work of the body of Christ, but at the same time, I think they enrich the body of Christ too, right? You know, uh, my son 
is turning three here tomorrow. And packages are coming in, and I've been getting phone calls from uh, some family members and, you know, grandparents and that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm, we've made a point to let them know that, you know, he has this gift or that gift. If, you, if you're thinking about getting him something different, think of the area of, uh, you know, something to ride or a certain kind of excavator, you play in the sandbox or, or that kind of thing. Imagine my son, when he's going to open up his gifts, he has 10 of all the same gifts. You know, he's 10 scooters. What's the fun in that? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> what three-year-old wants all the same gift? What 43-year-old wants all the same gift? No, none of us want that. In the diversity of the gifts, it enriches our encounter with the church. That's the point. And that's what we need to be thinking about as it relates to what Paul is talking about. And... What's more is that he insists, Paul, that in this principle of unity, that this is, uh, this is about the sacramental life of the church. So he insists on the church's unity, and he casts that unity in sacramental terms. If you to go into that chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Christians are bound together by common baptism and Eucharist. God has endowed the church with graces that even angels see God's plan unfold through the church. If you go to Ephesians 3:10, there's a, that fascinating verse that even angels see God's plan unfolding through the church. Now, some people object that this church is something that is purely spiritual or that is merely figurative. But that is not what Paul seems to be addressing here when he speaks of the church as the body of Christ. Why? Because a body is the visible part of a being endowed with a soul. Right? The spiritualized body, the embodied spirit, the great line from John Paul II on anthropology. We're just not body, but body and soul. So, I mean, if Paul wanted to describe a purely spiritual church, he could have called it the soul of Christ. That would have been more pertinent. That would have worked better, I think, right? That makes sense. That's logical. But body would be an unlikely choice, especially because it's a metaphor that is so dominant in his writing. So, if we talk about uh, the church as something figurative or uh, something purely spiritual. I'd be careful about that interpretation because when you go to interpret Paul collectively, that's not what he seems to be talking about. He's speaking in very concrete terms. So as we speak to a body, then, as I had mentioned earlier, really what we're talking about is that visible reality. That visible reality. So we can be sure then that Jesus... And St. Paul did not intend a vague unity. <laughs> if you were to go back a few chapters from 1 Corinthians 12 into chapter 10, chapter 1, verses 10 uh, and 11, he says something interesting. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
one flock, one shepherd. The one thing that destroys that unity, the one thing that breaks down that oneness in the body of Christ is dissension. You know, there are lots of times in our lives where we are engaged in a conversation. And in that conversation, we do not listen. And ultimately, the back and forth listen-response relationship dialogue <laughs> turns into a point-counterpoint, punch-counterpunch. And it leads to disunity. Uh, this we, we are to avoid. But what Paul's talking about is something greater. He's talking about uh, the, the teachings of the church. We see this at the uh, end of his epistle to Rome. In chapter 16 where he's talking about the same thing. Do not fall prey to false teaching. Do not fall prey to dissension. You know, if you were to go to Acts 2.42, this is where you have the real snapshot of ecclesial unity, the unity of the church, the church being one. Acts 2.42 reads, And they held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Four principles kind of come to the surface. Teaching, fellowship, bread, prayers. All of the essential actions of the church's life here coming forth out from the early community there in Jerusalem. They held to the doctrinal catechesis of the apostles, the teaching, the interpersonal communion and support, the fellowship, the celebration of the Eucharist, the breaking of the bread, and the community prays and petitions the prayers themselves. We highlight this now because what we are made to see is that in every aspect of life, the earliest believers were united as a family, as they learned together, lived together, ate together, worshiped together, prayed together. They were united under the one banner of Christ, under the one banner of truth, under the one banner of love. So with this passage from Acts 2.42, we have a snapshot of the church taken that allows us to see the beauty and the wonder of the unity of the church. This is not to say that the Catholic Church has no grumblers in its pews, rebels, dissenters, or sinners. But the church remains one, despite the sort of characters we meet in those same pages of, of the Acts of the Apostles that we just read from. You know, Ananias, Simon, you know, I mean, Paul himself <laughs> was, was a one-time reprobate. The church is divine, but it is also human. This is the mystery of its embodied life. When God became carnate, his crucified body was covered with grime and spittle. In every age, there were sinners within the church, and we are all sinners, are the grime on the body of Christ. Those are the words of Dr. Hahn there. I think those are powerful words. When God became incarnate, his crucified body was covered with grime and spittle. In every age, 
the sinners within the church, and we are all sinners, are the grime on the body of Christ. Now, what's so important in all of this is to see that in spite of ourselves, <laughs> we remain one in Christ. And that this isn't something that is just purely spiritual or merely figurative, but something that is very concrete. And so as we talk about this great mark of the church, of being one, we are mindful of the, the virtue of love and what it means to bring people into the oneness of Christ in word and deed. So with that, let us take a look at the church in her holiness, that the church is holy. Now, the New Testament speaks often of the church in, te- in terms of holiness. The church is a holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9 says. The bride of Christ, a powerful, powerful image. It is the temple of the living God. Essentially, it is the holy body of Christ. The church's members uh, themselves are holy ones or saints, right? Depending on the translation of, of your scripture, right? If you go to Acts 9, 13, 1 Corinthians 6, 1, this is a note that Dr. Hahn makes. Now, these are holy ones, but they're also saints. And the word saint is in scripture. Now, the whole idea of holiness is central to our faith and scripture. Uh, the Hebrew word for holiness is kedushin. It literally means a set apart, reserved for a special purpose, as the temple is set apart from other buildings, as the Sabbath is set apart from other days. We have to appreciate this for what it is when the bride, right, is walking down the aisle and her groom looks upon her for the first time in her wedding dress. There is a certain kind of holiness to it. Why? Because it is a day that has been set apart. Right? So if we who are called to enter into this kind of bridal relationship with God, where in the Eucharist we enter into this bridal union with Christ, are now set apart. We are made clean in the sacrament of confession. Made white. We are different. You know, it's interesting, Paul uses the word in Greek, hagiazo, the, the English word is sanctified, its Greek word is hagiazo, set apart. It translates the Old Testament understanding of set apart, but what was being set apart in the Old Testament? Well, things, liturgical vestments, that kind of thing, for worship. In the New Testament, things aren't per se set apart for God, people are. By baptism, we are all priests, prophets, and kings, and we are set apart for a holy purpose. This is one of the great truths that come to us as it relates to the new covenant and how we are called to share in the life of the church. The church is holy because it shares in God's divine life. And as the body of Christ, the church possesses and dispenses the very life of Christ. Its members are holy because by baptism, by baptism, my friends, we share in God's very nature. That's the meaning of grace. A sharing in God's own life. Recently, I was talking about 
a grace on the image of sap. A root word to grace, res, it has this image of sap. Well, what do you think of when you see or hear the word sap? Well, that's sticky stuff, right? That's very difficult to get off of you. <laughs> very difficult at times. Well, God's goodness, God's grace, his life, it's sticky. It sticks to our souls, okay? But what's more, you know, sap, it actually has the very nutrients of the tree, hormones. Right? So <laughs> when we receive the grace of God, we receive the very life of God, the very nutrients of God, the very life-giving force of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, we share in God's very life. You know, that the people the church honors as saints are those who corresponded in an exemplary way with God's grace. Often we would see this grace manifesting itself in outward signs in heroic, virtuous life, a martyr's death maybe even, or even the working of great miracles. You know, many people today equate holiness with good behavior, but that's not the same thing. It is good to be good, yes. But Christ didn't call us just to be good. He called us to be disciples. He called us to accept everything that he gives us that it might make us more like him, which includes the suffering that we are actually called to share in his suffering. As uh, Colossians chapter 124 reminds us, First uh, Peter 4.13 and others. Essentially, holiness is the divine life, the life of Christ reproduced in our very life. You know, in the ancient church, they venerated the martyrs. You have heard me say before, you know, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of our faith. That great heroic act of dying to everything for the sake of Christ and giving your very life, that is a powerful, powerful testimony to Christ. But we are also called to live in another kind of martyrdom, a white martyrdom, a martyrdom where we die to ourselves each and every day, where we give our lives to God in everything that we do. So as we look at this mark of holiness, what we are made to see is that the church is a sacrament it is a sign of God's love to the world. And so we need to be better stewards of giving ourselves to God in everything that we do. And collectively as a church, that we might be better stewards of communicating, living this holiness. Certainly Pope Francis has us talking about Pope Francis because of not only his own holiness, yes, first and foremost, but also, it has people talking about how the church is different, how it is set apart from the world, 
how it is unique and how it is a sacrament, a sign of something different. This is why Christ came to establish the church, not as a political institution, but as a family that loves. And in doing so, really begin to see the mystery of God and how he reveals himself in it. And at the same time, that we might go deeper in our own relationship with God. You know, one faith, one baptism, one worship. The church is always dealt with in sacramental terms. And with the baptism and, and the Eucharist as its stead, uh, we are well equipped to go forth in our own journey of holiness and to embrace this as essentially our first vocation. The vocation to die to self and go deeper in our faith with Jesus Christ in whatever you do. <laughs> if you are a, a farmer, then your field is your altar. If you are an accountant, that desk that that computer sits on is your altar. Right? If you are a pilot, that plane you fly is your altar. And what do I mean by this? That your vocation, your work, is your offering to God. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, verses 1 to 5. That our very lives become this spiritual, spiritual worship unto God. Once again, this brings us back to that principle of oneness, of unity. Because if everything that we do is given to God as an offering, then we will better see what it means when the church says that she is one. Because there's nothing in our lives that we are separating from God. Once we see the principle of unity stronger in our own life, we will better see the principle of unity as that great first mark of the church. Next week, we will talk much more about these four marks with uh, Rob Sheridan as he will join me again. Um, we may revisit some of, the, some of the things I talked about tonight, um, but we will certainly be sure to touch upon the, the other two marks, Catholic and Apostolic, next week. All right, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, Heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe 
at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.